We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Good morning. And this morning, uh, the top story is that late last night, Representative Matt Gates filed a motion to oust Speaker McCarthy. So the uh, move was uh, really because apparently he's not... Uh, Happy with his speakership and wants McCarthy gone. So this is what Representative Gates said on the motion to vacate. This is cut one. From what for what purpose does the, does the gentleman from Florida now seek recognition? Mr. Speaker, pursuant to Clause 2A1 of Rule 9, I rise to give notice of my intent to raise a question of the privileges of the House. The gentleman will state the form of his resolution. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant. Resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. So a lot of speculation is that uh, Matt Gates, who is widely rumored to be running for governor in Florida after Ron DeSantis's term ends, uh, that this is really more of a focus on uh, getting some political attention uh, as well as appealing to the MAGA base that never really supported McCarthy in the first place. So we'll be talking about this a little bit more uh, later on in the program with my guest Mark Lauder from the America First Policy Institute. Uh, but right now I want to welcome Brandon Arnold, who's our first guest. He's the executive vice president at the uh, National Taxpayers Union. And uh, Brandon, I wanted to get your thoughts on the um, looming government shutdown. We have a continuing resolution just for 45 days and um, and how that also interplays with uh, how student loans are coming back and um, some of these issues that McCarthy is, I think, genuinely trying to resolve. But, you know, Gates has other thoughts. Yeah, good morning, Jenna, and so many moving parts, so much chaos taking place on Capitol Hill right now. So let's try to unpack a little bit of it. Um, Yeah, we have this 45-day continuing resolution that was put into place over the weekend. This is not a solution to our crisis by any stretch of the imagination. This is a short-term patch to avoid what would have been a shutdown situation that I think would have really disadvantaged Republicans. We've seen shutdown after shutdown, and Thanks in part to the media and what we, the stories and anecdotes that we get out of government shutdowns, the general public almost always blames Republicans for shutdowns, and it weakens our position. It does not strengthen it. So this buys us a month and a half, and during this month and a half, we really need a laser focus on getting these spending bills done. There's 12 spending bills that are supposed to be processed and sent to the president's desk each year. The House has only passed all four of them. Senate hasn't passed any. There's a lot of work to be done, and this is what is really important to lay the groundwork for the meaningful spending cuts that we need to achieve. The 
becoming a lot more difficult. It's already really difficult in any environment, but it's a lot more difficult when you have the level of infighting that you just referenced with regard to Gates trying to oust McCarthy. Without Republican unity, it becomes almost impossible to achieve these types of spending cuts. Yeah. So uh, so what is McCarthy's next best move then in terms of trying to get something that's meaningful and actually keep his speakership? I mean, it almost seems like it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, that now that Gates is saying, you know, we're not having unity. It's it's he's causing that in a sense. And so then it's setting McCarthy up to fail. Yeah, it's a really tricky situation for McCarthy. I wish there was a clear roadmap to move forward. You know, we need to set aside whatever personal disagreements take place. We need to try to remove to the extent possible. It's impossible to do this entirely, but try to remove the politics out of it. You alluded to um, some political considerations, people running for higher office and so forth that really complicate this matter further. But at the end of the day, you know, we need to move forward with these 12 appropriation bills. And we need to do so not just, again, to cut spending, but buried in all of these spending bills are what they call policy riders. And these are the most important provisions, perhaps, of the entirety entirety of the bills, because they are really the only realistic chance that Republicans have to push back against the Biden administration's rogue agenda. And here's what I mean by that. The bills say not just this is the spending level that we're going to send to the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Labor or whatever. They also include these provisions that say, and the Department of Labor cannot use any of these funds in order to achieve policy X. And that could be things like um, cracking down on independent contractors, which is something the Department of Labor is trying to do right now. That could be stopping the IRS from creating a taxpayer-funded tax service that would compete with private entities right now. That is another thing that the IRS is trying to do. These policy riders are essential. They're not going to materialize on their own, and they're not going to stay in those bills unless Republicans fight for them, get all these bills passed and over to the Senate and really roll up their sleeves and catch a word. And so this seems like uh, the the conservative coalition really needs to get together. And there is a lot of chaos and emotions are clearly running very high. But uh, cooler heads need to prevail if if we really want to get all of this done. So on the other side of the aisle, what is uh, the Democrats' agenda in terms of just sitting back and watching this kind of unfold, or what is uh, their main issue here? Yeah, I mean, they're they're popping a lot of popcorn right now, sitting back and watching the Republican Party implode. They are in an extremely favorable position right now. And the longer this fight plays out, the less work that Republicans do uh, to get these spending bills passed, to start to achieve the spending cuts that we need, the more it strengthens Democrats' hands. So Biden is loving this. Chuck Schumer is loving this. Heck, even the House minority, which is usually a very weak minority because the House is a majoritarian uh, uh, body of uh, of government, they have more power than they ever have. And it's all being handed to them by the Republicans' inability to agree on just about anything. I don't think they could agree right now that today is Tuesday if they put it up for a vote. So... At some point, they're just going to need to sit down and lay down arms and realize that, you know, Matt Gates is not the enemy here. Kevin McCarthy is not the enemy here. And I don't even like to use those terms. But if you're talking about the, the march that we have to large government, we're going to have a $2 trillion deficit this year. That's absolutely staggering. We're, we're pushing $33 trillion in national debt. If you think that the main people driving that are the Republican Party and House Republicans, 
then you really have misguided priorities. We need to see the bigger picture here, the forest for the trees, as they say, and try to work together. We're not going to solve this problem with a with a series of, of bills this Congress. This is a long-term fight. We need to do things that are going to address them in the long term. But in the short term, we need to achieve at least some uh, some marginal victories here in, in, in the direction of taxpayers. I'm speaking with Brandon Arnold, who is the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. And I think it's so apt that you say they, they can't agree on anything, even something as simple as saying that it's Tuesday. And I actually had to check my calendar when you said that. Uh, so, but, but, you know, it makes you wonder how the founders ever came together and actually debated and discussed and, and wrote our Constitution. I mean, it, it's a miracle that they all agreed on some foundational premises and then got together and created this document. It's like our Congress can't figure out even what uh, party they belong to and what the same goals and interests are and how you work and compromise. And and I think a lot of that is so broken. And because of that, especially for the conservative side, it is just handing a lot of wins to the left. And you know, speaking about the, the national deficit and the state of the economy, it really makes it easier for the Democrats to run on promises like um, forgiveness of student loan payments, um, for example. So that uh, so student loan payments resumed uh, starting yesterday. And so that was, of course, during the whole uh, COVID pause. And how is that potentially going to impact um, any of this on the larger scale and looking forward into 2024? Yeah, great question there. That's a huge story, particularly for a lot of families right now. They've gotten a three-year break from having to pay their student loans. Uh, During that time, interest did not accrue great for those families, maybe not so great for the taxpayers. And and let me first say, I'm very sympathetic to people who are struggling in this economy and to have an extra $200, $300 expense pop up this month, that's going to really hurt a lot of American families. And I'm sympathetic to them. But at the same time, you know, if you borrow that money, you need to repay it. That three-year period was too long. It made sense during the pandemic. It was implemented originally by Trump, as you know, uh, to get people through a very uncertain period. But the pandemic's been over for a long time, and those payments should have resumed a long time. Now, that being said, Congress needs to be sympathetic to these folks because, like I said, many of them are struggling. It's tough to put food on the plate here. It's tough to, uh, to fill up your tank with gasoline these days with prices going through the roof. So I think there are ways that Congress can help these families that doesn't have anything to do with the student loan situation. And that is just improving our general economy. There's a tax package that I really like, cleared the Ways and Means Committee earlier this summer that would expand the standard deduction. That means a tax cut basically for working class America. It would incentivize businesses to, to stay in this country, to invest in this country, research and developing machinery, you name it to create jobs. Those types of policies, I think, will blunt the impact of having these student loan payments resumed. Yeah, and you know that kind of uh, focus was something that that I think all of the working class America just loved about President Trump because he spoke to those things. He um, implemented some of these policies that really did uh, create a great economy. Um, we pre-pandemic, and of course, um, you know all of all of that was so unprecedented. And um, and yet, it seems like none of the Republican coalition and even 
uh, the the GOP primary candidates um, aren't really focused on some of these issues. I mean, for uh, Matt Gates, for example, to be more focused on vacating the chair for, with McCarthy, with all of these things going on, um, it seems like there is such an emph- emphasis on politics in Washington instead of actually getting things done. So what can the average American um, consider in terms of what we can do and what we should be paying attention to in uh, these next 45 days while the continuing resolution is still in place? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I encourage this uh, as many times as people will allow me. Uh, contact your members of Congress. People don't do that because they don't think their voice is going to make a difference. It really does. It, it really does have an impact, especially when it's not just you calling, but you tell you know, your friends from church, your neighbors, uh, people you interact with uh, in social clubs, at the gym, what have you. When you tell them, hey, let's all contact our senator, our member of Congress, and let's tell them, get to work, let's cut some spending, let's take this job seriously. I think they will listen, and they will start to change Washington a little bit, and a little bit really helps. Uh, but, yeah, I think the problem right now is we have this 24-hour news cycle where everyone wants to go uh get on TV, pound on the table and say, you know, I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. I think at the end of the day, we need some better leadership. We need people to really step up to the plate and provide leadership. And Trump did that. You know, Trump was absolutely the undisputed leader of the Republican Party, and he was able to push people in the right direction. We talk about his biggest legislative achievement in my estimation was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And he really helped usher that across the finish line by twisting the arms in some instances of, uh, of Republicans that were a little hesitant to vote for it. And it's been an extraordinarily successful piece of legislation, thanks to um, So who's going to step in? Is that going to be Trump? Is that going to be somebody else? I don't know. But you can certainly feel that vacuum of, uh, of leadership amongst Republicans right now when it comes to legislation, when it comes to steering us in the direction of fiscal responsibility, and we're paying the price for that. Yeah, and it seems like McCarthy uh, is not able to step in that gap and especially kind of corral some of these, um, you know, wild stallions, if I can put it that way, like the Matt Gates yeah. of, of the world and uh, in his coalition. And so um, in just the last 30 seconds I have with you, uh, Brendan Arnold, who's the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union, um, what does McCarthy need to get done then? I mean, do, do you think he can be an effective leader? I think he can be an effective leader. I, I think he needs to sit down and have a drink with Matt Gates, have dinner with Matt Gates, and try to hash this out because I think so much of it is personal. And listen, it becomes really easy if you're a fan of football to get frustrated with your quarterback when he throws an interception or two and to say, put in the backup quarterback. But before you make that claim, you always have to look at who's sitting on the bench there. Do you have somebody that can step up and demonstrate the leadership that you're demanding that has that skill set? That person may be out there, but if you're just simply trying to tear things down without an acceptable replacement, without a better solution going forward, then you're not really helping things. And I haven't heard anything to that effect. If we are going to replace McCarthy, and I'm not sure we should, I probably would rather keep him honestly and move on and fight these legislative fights. You better be sure that we need a better person stepping up that will provide that leadership. I'm not sure who that is. Really great points. All right, Brandon Arnold, thanks so much. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
According to a recent study of hundreds of post-abortive women, 60% of women reported that they would have preferred to give birth if they had received more support from others or had more financial security. And that's where preborn steps in. Preborn is there for women in their darkest hour, deciding between the life and death of their precious child. You see, the reality is women are being pressured to make this fatal decision and are being told that their babies are just clumps of cells. Preborn welcomes women with God's love and introduces them to the beautiful life growing inside of them, which doubles their baby's chance at life. When you support preborn, you are not only supporting women, you empower them. Your donation of $28 will help a woman make a choice that she won't have to regret for the rest of her life and gives her the ultimate blessing, life. Your love can save a life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And our good friend, Alan Mashburn, who is running for lieutenant governor out of the great state of North Carolina, joins. He has written a wonderful piece in American Greatness called Never Again, Stand Up to the Left's Use of COVID to Shut Down America. We are Americans. It's time we acted like it. I could not agree more. So, Alan, uh, welcome back. And, you know, this is very personal for you as well. So let's start with that and uh, the personal story that you shared on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, yes, Jenna, always good to be with you. Um, this is very personal for me, specifically in um, 2020 when everything went haywire. 2019, my father having uh, started having a series of strokes, and uh, it wasn't long before we, we found out, realized that he had to have round-the-clock care. So January 2020, we had to do that. We visited him every day until March 15th when uh, the current governor here, Governor Cooper, imposed a tyrannical rule and uh, issued mandates that the the whale had to be quarantined. And he shut down all visitation to nursing homes. I mean, literally, you could look down the halls of the nursing homes and all the doors were shut. Everyone was shut inside their rooms. So from March 15th to May 15th, we never saw my father until we got a call, finally, after we created so much noise and problem for them, that um, we got a call on May the 15th of 2020 and said, he's within hours of death. If you want to see him, come up here. We'll wheel him to the window, and you can look in. And I said, that's that's not going to happen. We're, we're coming in. So long story short, we... we we got 43 minutes to spend with my father in the space of two months where he never felt a human touch from family, never heard our voice. Uh, God forbid I deal with this. God forbid he died in love. And I am so sorry for the horror that your family was put through. I mean, when I, when I read that story um, on X, I, my heart just goes out to you because I cannot imagine 
um, like you and the other families that were put through um, being separated from your loved ones at a time when the the right and normal thing to do is to go and spend every waking moment with them in the hospital. And this was a an atrocity, I think, that was perpetuated on um, the world and, and the way that this was handled by the government um, from the federal level and Fauci all the way down to um, these these state and local officials and these standards were just horrible. Um, and so, you know, so you wrote this piece now to say that we need to never, ever have these types of um, policies that don't care for our loved ones and understand that there's more at stake than than just a virus. I mean, you know, 43 minutes as opposed to 45, as opposed to 47. I mean, you know, what what's the, did they think that that was the, the cutoff? I mean, it was so bizarre to me to see, you know, the, the arrows, the one-way arrows in Whole Foods. I mean, how many lives did that really save? Or to say, well, you if you stand up and you walk out of a restaurant, then you have to have your mask on. But once you sit down, you're fine. So I'm like, well, okay, does the virus just, are, are tall people more susceptible? I mean, none of it, none of it really made sense. Um, so from a policy standpoint, uh, what is your advocacy now, especially having gone through something so personal? We will never allow this to happen again. There was, there was absolutely no medical reason. We look back now and we, we see it was absolutely conditioning us in a mindset to comply, to comply with rules. When I see arrows on the floor or these little stickers on the floor in a restaurant six feet apart, I stomp all over them and move anywhere I want because this is America. Uh, viruses do not have uh, boundaries. Uh, it's never been about a virus. And so one reason that propelled me into running for lieutenant governor of North Carolina, he sits on the council of state in which Governor Cooper at this time when he imposed these mandates was supposed to, within uh, 48 hours, go before the Council of State and get a vote to make sure make sure that it was legal, and he failed to do that, of course. But my advocacy, never again. No family should ever go through this again. And my story, and thank you for giving me this platform this morning, my story is just one of thousands across this land that don't have a voice, that have reached out to me since this article has been put out and said, thank you for speaking up. So never again. That's the two words that keep ringing out in my mind. Never again. And and I think, Ellen Mashburn, that so many uh, people who are listening to this, that sentiment really resonates with us. And um, and we also want to see accountability. I mean, what does that really look like to you from a personal perspective as well to say, you know, this was a, a horrible thing that your family went through and to say never again, but also... Um, what what does that look like in terms of the government who is responsible for these policies that led to um, these types of, of harms to families? Well, I think it goes back to our previous conversations on your show of how we have been asleep and let things get out of hand, obviously, let things happen. And uh, we, we've just been doing our own little thing in our sweet little world. And then all of a sudden we have the the, the lunatics that are actually – in charge, and they're acting as overlords uh, toward us and about us and about our rights, trampling all over the Constitution. 
And uh, there is no pandemic clause in the Constitution, and you well know that because you're a constitutional scholar. But um, to say never again, we have to stand up to this. This is complete idiocy, and it is nothing more than bringing us to a brink of compliance and to look to the government for our for our hope, for our direction, for our instructions. And by the way, Dr. Mandy Cohen, who was in charge of the North Carolina Health and Human Services during COVID in North Carolina, has now been elevated by the Biden administration, and she leads the CDC. So she was behind all of this tyrannical rule, and she's not going to serve us well in the CDC, I guarantee you that. Oh, of course not. And, you know, we need actual, uh, you know, people who understand that that health choices are uh, up to individuals. And, of course, when we're talking about health, we're not including, um, you know, the intentional intervention, medical intervention designed to kill a child like abortion. But apparently that's health care to the Democrats. But then genuine health care, like having your loved ones around you and in, in the time of need in the hospital. Well, you know, that that's too risky. And we're going to say no to that. And it was surprising to me um, to, to learn Alan Mashburn when um, the the churches, some of the churches that were staying open and did take a stand, like my former client, um, John MacArthur and Grace Community Church, in their stand and some of the pastors, um, even in Canada, looking at these health appointments, a lot of these people actually have a background in social work. Um, and and some of these other sort of critical theories rather than healthcare, and I think that really speaks to a larger overall agenda rather than saying we're focused on um, healthcare solutions. There's there's clips even of some of these people saying you know we're focused on uh, making sure that we have health equity, and I think that that's a a really important thing to highlight just from a policy perspective that we need to get the right people in some of these positions. And so you're running for a lieutenant governor out of uh, North Carolina, and um, talk for just a moment about um, your faith and your campaign and why this is so uh, important for you. Well, I believe 2024 across the board is going to be about faith, family, and freedom. Uh, Economy, that falls under faith, family, and freedom. Um, Individual rights, absolutely. We are losing our individuality, and we are losing vastly losing our sovereignty as a nation because Grandpa in the Oval is giving everything up. So we have got to take our faith and live out our faith. Uh, Ephesians says work out your own salvation. That means work for your salvation. means work outside that inward work, outside so people can see it. If we're the light and the salt of the world, then we're doing our job, and we're affecting the world for Christ, and we're affecting the world for rights. Our campaign has been totally about faith, family, and freedom. This propelled me toward this. We have to eradicate, and I mean surgically remove, whether it be a scalpel or an axe, we need to surgically remove this DEI, this critical theory, critical race theory, social emotional learning, i.e. Marxism from our vocabulary as a nation it's going to be crucial to our survival and i think that i think we need to issue a call to pastors preach the gospel like it's never been preached before we need to issue a call to individuals stand in your uh, position in christ like you've never stood before and stand up for the constitution and everything that american values really truly are
Yeah, so well said, uh, Alan Mashburn. And, you know, I, I think that there should be a call to pastors, and it's very unfortunate to see how so many pastors don't want to engage in politics because uh, for whatever the reason, whether it's it's too dirty, they're concerned about their tax status, there are you know, all kinds of reasons um, that or excuses really to say, well, we're not going to talk about topics. And of course, they, they could. I mean, every nonprofit can talk about um, all of these biblical topics, they can talk about politics. I mean, they there's really no excuse uh, for that. And yet it seems like a lot of Christians want to compartmentalize the Christian life versus the political life. And I think we need to bridge that gap and ask the question, how do we live Christianly in a civil government that is rapidly uh, going toward cultural Marxism, um, towards statism, and away from the religious liberty of the founders that we have so enjoyed for our whole lifetimes and for America's lifetime. And so how would you as a pastor uh, encourage Christians to understand how to live Christianly and think about it as um, living in the midst of civil government rather than having this sort of um, embrace of separation of church and state, which which is really what it's become. I mean, people don't some some Christians don't want to engage politics, or they think that that's kind of a separate uh, notion. And and I think we have to live Christianly in the midst of civil government and be engaged. Absolutely, Satan has taken the the um, term separation of church and state, and he has uh, capitalized on it, which we know is nowhere found in our founding documents. I would I would say this to pastors first. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear. If you're not speaking out, it's not fear of losing a, a tax uh, exemption. It's, it's plain fear. It's, it's, it's fear. Get over it, because God has not given us the spirit of fear. Paul stood before Felix. Every Old Testament... Uh, prophets stood before the leaders of Israel. We have a mandate by God to take the truth and to stand up before our leadership in our in the national setting, in the state setting. Uh, you cannot get around that. Secondly, I say to, to believers, uh, God established civil government. Why in the world would God not want us to be involved in something that he created? He created the home. He created civil government. He created the church. And so it, it, common logic says God wants us involved. Thus he lays out the, the commands to be the salt and light to the world. Uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen. go out, upon this rock I'll build my church. The word ecclesia there is, is the public arena. God wants us in the public arena. And so get past the fear element and stand up for Jesus Christ. He has never, never done us any harm. He's only done us good, and he's worthy of it. Amen to that. And, you know, this is why the Bible says that we are supposed to fear God, not fear man. And, you know, what can man do to me? And also in in the Bible, when um, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, are, are you two going to abandon me? And, and Peter says, Lord, where else would we go? I mean, I feel that way so many times in, in the midst of the trials and tribulations in my personal life or um, even just looking around in the civil government and the broader scale. We have to ask that question, where else would we 
would we go? And, and we have to be fully reliant on the Lord, trust him, but be engaged and not have a spirit of fear, but as the Bible admonishes, a sound mind. And so we do need to engage. We need to stand up. And the title of your piece, Never Again, um, I think is a very apt term that we need to stand firm without fear because it was really the fear of the unknown and of um, the virus that led a lot of people to just capitulate and to make decisions that if they really stopped and thought about it and, and moved away from the fear element, they probably would have done otherwise. And I've heard so many people with so many um, regrets that they didn't stand up and stand firm. So we need to take a lesson in that and say, how can this prepare us uh, for the next thing? Because the next trial is coming. And so, um, Alan Mashburn, as you're running for lieutenant governor of, of North Carolina, I hope that other pastors are listening to you and they're encouraged to stand up and engage. And um, maybe for people who are listening and they're thinking, I really need to engage and, and run for public office. Um, in just the last couple of minutes I have with you, how would you encourage uh, them to look at maybe running for office as well? Well, let me turn to the pastors and say, look, guys, we are not beating you up. We love you. We need you. Um, we want to heavily encourage you to uh, let's just band together, do our jobs for God, and stand up for our country. Our veterans, our soldiers, our military have stood up, and and uh, if they're willing to run toward bullets, then my soul, I'm willing to take words and, and sneers and all of, all of the like. So, uh, let's band together. Let's stand up, and and let's consider. Uh, it, running for office is not for everyone. Running for office is not for every pastor. But I would start praying. I would start praying and say, God, what else would you have me do? Um, the Lord made it evident and started connecting the dots for me, and and I can look back and and say, this is the hand of God. But it all starts with prayer. It starts with a burden. And so let's start praying together. Let's start asking God to give us a burden for our country, for our state, for our community. And that goes beyond our church walls. Everything yes. we do must be done for the glory of God. And I think I think this this is must be done as well. Amen to that. And yeah, we all need to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do? I ask that question as well. That's why I'm here on radio every morning, because this is what God has for me. I'm so gl great, glad and grateful that you're running for office. Every single Christian should ask, what would God have me do to engage my church, my family, and also my civil government? And so also for those of you who haven't seen The Essential Church and Pastor John MacArthur stand, that movie, The Essential Church, is streaming on Salem Now. You can watch it, SalemNow.com. We'll be right back with more. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And so much going on in politics and uh, law as well as uh, President Trump going through a civil trial uh, right now in the state of New York. That's the continuation of the weaponization of government. And uh, RFK Jr. has also announced that he is running independent. And so how does this all factor into the 2024 presidential race? And how can we as conservatives be prepared for a better transition, better personnel? than uh, really what we saw initially in 2016 
uh, with President Trump's first four years. So joining me now is Mark Lauder, who is the Chief Communications Officer of the America First Policy Institute. And uh, Mark, we had Ashley Hayek on yesterday, and um, she made this point that AFPI is uh, really focused on helping that personnel transition regardless of uh, who the occupant of the White House is. And so let's start there with um, the personnel and why that's so important to policy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was in the uh, White House in 2017. I entered on January 20th when the president took office. Uh, and going through that transition, you realize just really how bad conservatives have been, by and large, when it comes to getting ready to take the reins of power. I mean, I've often compared it to the largest hostile corporate takeover on the planet, and it is. Uh, because, you know, the, bureauc- the bureaucracy of uh, Washington, D.C., 90 percent of the bureaucrats uh, hate everything that you stand for and are going to do everything they can to stop you. So I think that's really where the work that we're doing, you know, at, at the America First Policy Institute, we have nine former cabinet-level officials, f- nearly 50 uh, administration senior officials. And these weren't people who were sitting in think tanks in ivory towers. They were actually the people in the White House, in the agencies, doing the work. Uh, under the last administration. And so we know not only how to get it done, but also where the bureaucrats are going to throw up their landmines, where they're going to put their roadblocks up to try to stop you or delay you or slow you down. So a lot of the work that we're doing is preparing the playbook. So whomever goes in, uh, the next cabinet secretary, the next undersecretary of whatever, they're going to know, here are the key positions you need to fill on day one. Here are the key actions you need to take on day one, on day 30. So when the president says, I want to secure the border, I want to get energy independence going again, you know, A, how to do it, what policies need to be done, and then actually physically how to get it done and go through the bureaucracy around the bureaucrats uh, so the work actually gets done. And I think this is so important for people right now, especially when we're seeing what a contentious GOP primary it is. And I absolutely hate it. I am so ready for this primary to be over because the infighting is just so nasty from all sides. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and everyone else on that stage would be a better president than anyone else that has a leftist mentality and is pushing progressive progressive leftist policies or Joe Biden or you know Gavin Newsom, any of those people that um, ultimately might be the Democrat nominee. And so, you know, when we're looking at um, personnel and policy, we all as conservatives, I think, want um, to close the border. We want a better economy. We want to make sure to secure parental rights. I mean, we all agree on 98% of the things. And so how should we be looking to survive, I think, as a coalition through this primary? Well, I think the first thing we have to remember is that this is not new. Uh, you know, I'm old enough, and unfortunately, to remember. You know, I mean, in, back in 1980, we all, were, we, we all remember the outcome of, of the landslide Reagan victory, but we don't remember that he almost lost the primary to George H.W. Bush. Uh, he came within, you know, a, a, a very close uh, call there of getting the nomination. And then when it came to building his team, They were struggling to figure out who their vice president was going to be and reluctantly took George H.W. Bush to try to unite the party between the more uh, conservative movement that that Ronald Reagan represented and the old school New England country club Chamber of Commerce uh, Republicans that were represented by the Bush dynasty. 
so they brought the whole thing together, and obviously it became the Reagan Revolution. So we've been through this before, and we will make it through it. Uh, and you know, when we when we're at this point next year, I think it's going to be very important for us to bury the hatchet. And remember that, look, we were having a discussion, a disagreement, an argument amongst friends. Uh, I have friends that work on both campaigns. I have friends that think otherwise than than necessarily I do. Uh, They were my friends. They are my friends. They will still be my friends. And let's get back to the business of our true opponent, which is the radical left and Joe Biden. And whether it's in the halls of Congress or whether it's on a debate stage, these fights are not the real fight that we need to be having, and we're distracting from the one that's really important. Yeah, I think that's so well said. Uh, Mark Lauder, who is the chief communications officer for the America First Policy Institute, uh, to remember that this is a discussion among friends, and we can certainly uh, criticize and critique uh, policy, uh, personnel choices, you know, records of, of everyone. I mean, that's what poli- politics is. But at the end of the day, getting so personal or losing friends over it, um, you know, these are just things. It, it, it's a reset board, almost like the game of risk, where, you know, it, it resets every four years and almost every two years now just because of how volatile the midterms are that we do need to remember we've been there done that this is not the first primary and at the end of the day we all are Americans that should be focused on truly making this country great and continuing to preserve prosperity for the next generation so um, how then you know in, in in shifting a little bit from just the contentious primary on the GOP side this is now a really interesting factor that RFK jr is now running independent because I think he actually has a genuine opportunity especially if he if he is willing to concede the the Democrat hardcore leftist position on an issue like abortion and say, yeah, I would sign if it came to my desk, I would sign a you know fifteen week limitation or whatever the two parties uh, reconcile. You know, if he's if he's willing to say something like that um, on a couple of these values voters issues, I think that the old school Democrats would love him because he's a Kennedy. And those who hate Joe Biden on the Democrat side would love him. And then also some of the moderate Republicans and people who are just genuinely over Trump or people who are not impressed with the DeSantis campaign or whatever it is um, would end up supporting him. And then certainly if the general came down to a throughway between him, Trump and Biden, um, that that may be the first real three-way close election. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, so I've seen some polling out uh, even this morning that shows that if RFK runs, and most likely what is assumed is that he's going to run as a libertarian, uh, I don't think he is going to run as a true independent because getting on the ballot in all 50 states is a very difficult, time-consuming, and costly uh, endeavor. And, and, and as you know, Jenna, you know, campaigns spend a lot of time and a lot of money getting their candidate on a ballot. And so... Libertarians in most states have automatic ballot access, so they automatically get – if you are the nominee, your name, just like a Republican or a Democrat, you would automatically qualify and get your name on the ballot. <clears throat> so the question is going to be and, – and I had this debate last night on, uh, on, an, on a television program where I don't think – and I've seen the polls that show uh, Trump w- assuming that the nominee would be Donald Trump, which is obviously what the real clear politics average would be indicating today um, – the strength of support, the, the energy, the enthusiasm is not – RFK Jr. is not going to cut into that. And so Republican enthusiasm for Donald Trump, much higher than, than Democrat enthusiasm for Joe Biden, 
So I do think that while he will pull off some never-Trumpers, but they're never-Trumpers anyway, uh, and he will pull off, obviously, a lot of disaffected Democrats who are just tired of seeing Joe Biden do what he's doing, it still shows that Trump would win in that three-way battle by about three or four points, according to the two polls I saw this morning. And I think that's really fascinating because it could end up being the um, the inverse for the Republican Party of uh, you know the, the last three way really that we had um, in 1992 with um, Bush, Clinton, and Ross Perot, who was kind of the spoiler in that for uh, for H. W. Bush. And you know, so again, we've seen this before, but it it seems like the quote unquote spoiler, um, if we're if we're putting it that way, of RFK Jr. could actually cut in favor of the Republican nominee, um, whether that's Donald Trump, whether that's Ron DeSantis or someone else, for the reasons that you just articulated. So is there going to be um, from the Democrat side then a a potential push or a calculation uh, to look at that and say, you know, Joe Biden is wildly unpopular. Um, he may be the the puppet of the Democrat Party, but if they can't win an election, um, then then they'll lose regardless. And so it would seem like their better play would be to uh, have Biden step down, however that happens, and to put up um, someone else, whether that's a Governor Newsom, whether that's Michelle Obama, as uh, people have, have rumored and, and speculated. Um, so what is their best calculation? Well, unfortunately, they're stuck. Uh, they're stuck with Joe Biden. Uh, and I think we're too far down the process. I mean, we're really only about eight weeks away from the voting starting uh, in Iowa, even though they don't want it to be in Iowa or New Hampshire. They don't want it to be in New Hampshire, but that's still where those votes start. Uh, so there's still about eight weeks. That is a lot. That is not a lot of time to build a ground game, build out, get out the vote effort, raise hundreds of millions of dollars, hire the staff, go meet the voters and start over, uh, which is the same reason why I think that folks who s- speculate that uh, – Glenn Youngkin might get in. Same issue applies on the Republican side. It, there's just not enough time uh, to do all of these things. Uh, they also run the risk of alienating a, a very significant portion of their voter base if they move on from Biden and it's not Kamala Harris, whom they all right. know is a horrible candidate and can't <laughs> win, but it would look very disrespectful. So they're, they're stuck. Uh, with Joe Biden. I think they, they have come to this decision that they've made their bed. Now they're going to lie in it. And well, they do lie a lot. So they're going to lie in it. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the double entendre for sure. They so the they lie all they, kinds of ways. So are they, you know, will they try to pump up, you know, again, we've seen Democrats play this game before. Will they try to literally pump up RFK Jr. with conservative bona fides? Will they try to make him more palatable to try to take voters away from Donald Trump rather than try to undercut him with Democrats? Uh, it's going to be a very interesting game. Uh, you know, I think obviously very important to remember I don't think an RFK, I don't think a, a West running as a Green Party candidate, they're not going to win a state. They're not going to get electoral votes. The question is can you pull enough voters? in the key states, in the key demographics, away from your opponent, that you could flip the outcome of that race uh, to, an, to, another, to the other candidate. 
And I'm speaking with Mark Lauder, who is the Chief Communications Officer of the America First Policy Institute. And, you know, one of the um, theories that has been floated, you know, online, and I've even seen in a few media circles, uh, because of the Kamala problem that the Democrats do have, that she would naturally be the heir apparent, being the current uh, vice president. That's just kind of the natural order of things. I think that's why uh, Mike Pence is running. I mean, he he considers himself the, the next in line. Um, and, and generally, that's the way that it happens. And, and yet we've seen how on the Republican side and the Democrat side, things are just so um, interestingly different, I'll just put it that way, um, for this particular election. But the the theory that's being floated is that Gavin Newsom could appoint uh, Kamala Harris to go back to the Senate, basically, and fill uh, Dan Feinstein's uh, now vacant seat and then um, end up being in the vice presidential role. And then if Biden has to step down, he would just benefit from the apparatus that is already the Biden campaign. What are your thoughts on that theory? Well, obviously, so uh, Governor, uh, Governor Newsom has already appointed the head of Anne, uh, Emily's list, who lives in Maryland, by the way, to be the new senator from California. And she has not decided uh, whether she will run for that office in 2024 because the term is up in 2024. So that, that already takes that option off the table. I can't see any, any uh, realm, even if he had not done that, where Kamala Harris leaves the vice presidency a heartbeat of way. Uh, you know, with access to Air Force Two and all of the pro- the pomp and circumstance that goes with being vice president, to go back to her old job in the Senate, and and then obviously, again, what signal would it send for Democrats to go from you know the first female uh, vice president, the first uh, female vice president of color, to now having two old white guys, uh, you know, running uh, for the top of their ticket? So. Uh, I don't think it's plausible. Obviously, that that is now out of the realm of possibility since Governor Newsom has appointed uh, a uh, a black Maryland resident who also identifies as LBGTQ uh, to be the new senator from uh, from uh, California. In fact, I think she's going to be sworn in tomorrow afternoon by Kamala Harris. Wow. So the the next diversity hire for the left. And in just the last two minutes I have with you here at Mark Lauder, um, let's also shift. And I just want to get your quick thoughts as well on um, what's going on with Donald Trump with his civil trial right now that's out of Manhattan. And you know, he's actually having to sit um, in court through this. So left the campaign trail. How does all of the weaponization of government in terms of the indictments, I mean, all of these just crazy things that the left is throwing at him purposefully, I think, um, to uh, to disrupt his campaign. How effective will that potentially be? I think it's backfiring on them uh, significantly. And in fact, you know, when you have this judge who's already apparently thrown out 80 percent of their case because Letitia James couldn't figure out what a statute of limitations was. Uh, and then you make such just obvious blunders in judgment. Again, you know, I, I'll leave the court of law to you, Jenna, uh, and won't begin to debate the law with you. But the court of public opinion, when you have this judge come out and say Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million, and I can go on Zillow, which I did over the weekend, and found a house that was a fraction of the size, a fraction of the property, didn't cover uh, water to water, that was valued at $54 million. I mean, it just shows you the, the bias. A hundred percent. And Mark Lauder, really appreciate it. I think we should start a GoFundMe and we can all chip in and get in. Because Mar-a-Lago is at a really good price, apparently. <laughs> That's all the time we have. Again. And we'll see you tomorrow morning right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. 
Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.